Good morning. Um, The reading is from Mark 14, and we're going to start at verse 32 and finish at verse 52. Gethsemane. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass for him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them asleep. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kissed is the man, arrest him, and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Dean. Well, next weekend is Easter, and um, it's been strange not to be able to do the lead-up as a church family, Um, but as I said before, it's so wonderful to all be back together. I forgot my drink bottle, which was not very organised of me. Um, And I did wonder if we would be in the same situation that we were a few years ago, where we had to do uh, Easter via Zoom, which was a bit weird. 
Um, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for a couple of months now, as hopefully most of you will know. And today we've taken a leap forward. We were only up to chapter 3 or 4 or something like that. Now we're taking a, a leap forward into chapter 14 as we prepare for the final week in the lead up to Easter, often referred to as Passion Week. And often on the Sunday before Good Friday, uh, we study the passage of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, uh, where he rides on a donkey and where he was welcomed by many. And, you know, most of you will know the story where they threw palm leaves down in front of Jesus, and hence we call it Palm Sunday. Um, but we don't meet together as a by church again until Resurrection Sunday. So today I felt it was more appropriate to look at the part of Mark's gospel much further along in the journey to the cross, and that's in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' arrest, as we have just heard. And as we have just heard, Jesus goes into the garden with his disciples. He enters some pretty intense times of prayer, so intense, intense in anguish um, that in other accounts we read, he sweated drops of blood. I don't know about you, but I've certainly never prayed with that kind of uh, intensity. Um, and his prayer involves the language of drinking from a cup. And he petitions uh, to God that this cup would be taken from him. But in the end, he would still submit to the Father's will. Three times he prays, and three times his disciples appear to have fallen asleep, rather than keeping watch as Jesus had asked them to. And then, as we know, Judas turns up with his crowd, uh, and when we read in the other gospel accounts, there were Jews and Gentiles, Romans and um, religious and irreligious, blue-collar cultural elite, and really just a wide range of people who had come, as Tim Keller points out, signifies everyone. Everyone had come to capture Jesus. Everyone hates Jesus. Not just one group, but everyone. And today we're going to have a look at how this passage demonstrates the wrath of God and the grace of God. It doesn't look like it at first glance, but um, stick with me and you'll see how. And we can't have one without the other. Both are on display here. We cannot appreciate the grace and love displayed on the cross and be transformed by that grace displayed if we don't understand and acknowledge the wrath of God. Let me say that again. We cannot appreciate the grace and love displayed on the cross and be totally transformed by the grace demonstrated if we don't also understand and acknowledge the wrath of God. So let me just pray as we enter into this uh, uncomfortable, slightly uncomfortable topic. Father God, we thank you that we are your people. We thank you that you have called us to be your children and you know us each by name. Father, as we look at this passage, we ask that you would help us to see um, with, your, with, our, with your eyes what you are doing here. Help us to open our hearts to hear your word. And may your word transform us from the inside out, we ask. So, the wrath of God. I know it's probably one of the most uncomfortable attributes uh, of God's nature uh, that we as modern Westerners struggle with. And I've certainly wrestled with it and tried my best to weasel out of this message. <laughs> this message took twice as long to write compared to the other ones. Um, but I would not be a faithful preacher of the Word of God if I bypassed the difficult topics. Most of us either like to ignore the word wrath or we like to hide from it. Or we just hope and pray that we don't get struck down. Or maybe we make light of it by joking it. Uh, the other, many of us use it as a reason for not believing in God too. And the other day I heard someone joking, uh, oh, I better not say that or I might get struck down by God. You know, we joke about it. 
Um, but some people actually take it so seriously that they uh, say, oh, I, I can't believe in that God, so I'm not going to believe in Jesus either. And I can't, um, believe, I can't tell you as well how many people I've said, uh, I've heard who say they don't believe in God of the Old Testament because they can't believe the loving God would act the way he does in places. And perhaps some of our responses are a knee-jerk reaction to some of the less than helpful teaching that we've had on this uh, in the past, especially those that involved hellfire and damnation and all sorts of other things, uh, where the wrath of God uh, is portrayed in a very unhelpful way. And I need to acknowledge that there will be people here who have um, suffered damage, and I'm sorry for that. But I also need to acknowledge a couple of other things while I'm acknowledging things here. There are many parts of God's character that are a mystery to us. This side of eternity, we're not going to know everything about God. And I'm not going to pretend to understand uh, more about it than I do. Uh, There is certainly a lot of mystery for me. But I'm going to, and I'm not going to try and be comprehensive about God's wrath. I'm simply going to look at how this relates to our appreciation of the cross, about what Jesus did and how we understand grace in the light of his wrath. Also, I'm aware there may be many questions that some of you have that arise uh, from this talk, and I would welcome any conversation uh, that anybody wants to have, and I'm sure Graham would too. Uh, So if any of you do have questions and you want to come and chat, then uh, let us know. We're all on this faith journey together. And wrestling uh, with things are a really important part of our faith journey. And finally, I want to acknowledge the work of Dr. Tim Callaghan's wonderful work on this topic. His insights have helped me prepare today, and some of his content is in this um, talk today too. So as I was saying, we find the wrath a very uncomfortable part of God. But as a Christian culture today, we've actually largely swung the other way. I said some preachers used to just, that was all they talked about. Now we've kind of swung the other way, with many teaching in churches just involving grace and love. No judgmental wrath and no mention of sin. But here's why we have to address it. Because we can't fully appreciate what happened on the cross without it. And there are three things that I want to make about, um, three points I want to make about this passage in Mark and about the wrath of God. The first is that God's wrath is justified. The second uh, is that God's wrath is absorbed. And the third is that I've already mentioned, but I'll unpack further. We must understand God's wrath before we can understand God's grace to an even fuller level than what we do now. So this account and the rest of um, the gospel shows that everyone came to arrest Jesus. They hated him and they arrested him to kill him. It wasn't just a dislike or a mm, disagreement. Disliking doesn't drive you to kill something or someone. Hatred does. Enemies hate. And here, Jesus' enemies in their hate came to arrest Jesus. He wasn't fitting their picture of Messiah. And he wasn't following Torah as he thought, as they thought he should be. He was creating a big disturbance and he needed to be disposed of. And we too, we don't just dislike God or disagree with him. You know, part of us hates him too. Before the Holy Spirit comes and renews us from the inside out completely and fully, we still carry hate. What? I don't hate God, you say? Many say, I don't even believe in God, so how can I hate him? As Tim Keller says, we are all mad at him, and we all hate him, and this is how we know how. Because we tell ourselves inaccurate stories about God to cover over our hate and the God that we hate. Stories that are not true, sometimes we're not even aware that we're doing it. 
Let me explain this a bit more. The human heart is sick and it has been since the fall. We've all been struck with the curse of the fall. And we all have a tendency to put ourselves back on the throne of our lives rather than God. We've talked about this when we looked in the beginning of Genesis. And the devil whispered into Eve's ear deception. And ever since then, humanity has believed that deception. We doubt God's goodness, don't we? We doubt his generosity. And we can't face what he's truly like. Just as Adam and Eve hid from God, we too hide from God in what he's really like. Our fallen human hearts just can't stand the fullness of who he is. See, the human heart hates whatever threatens our self-sovereignty. Anything that demands us to get off the throne of our hearts is a threat to us. It starts from a very young age. Our kids, each of them, when they hit 12 months or so, they begin to realise their own will and their own desires, and they begin to resent authority. It's a really sad time to realise your child isn't perfect and uh, that they... They do indeed have a fallen sinful nature, just like the rest of us. I can see all the mums smiling in the room. The innocent just really fades, doesn't it? Joshua will currently do something he knows he shouldn't do. But just before he does, he turns around and he gives us this kind of cheeky look. Uh, and then he'll deliberately do what he knows he's not um, supposed to do. And I've got to admit, it is pretty cute. <laughs> but it's also pretty telling of the condition uh, that we are all born into. And then when we lay down the law, often Graham more than me because I'm a softie, uh, he hates it. <laughs> he hates being told what to do. And our two-year-old, even more so. Oh, the temper tantrums. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> and as adults, we generally uh, are able to, to behave in a more socially acceptable way. But we still resent authority at times. We still resent being told what to do. And God is the biggest threat to our self-sovereignty. And so we hate him, or part of us hates him. And if we become Christians, we acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, and he is the one who should be on the throne of our hearts. But every day, multiple times a day, we still have to remind ourselves of this, don't we? We still have to fight ourselves that's trying to climb back on the throne of our hearts. We can't just help but want to be the master of our life even when we've decided to follow him. The Holy Spirit transforms us, yes, but our flesh still wants to be front and centre. And we still have a tendency to hate God because we can't control him. Even as Christians, or especially as Christians, he doesn't fit into our neat little boxes. He isn't predictable. He isn't a God we can control and bargain with. Still don't believe me about hating God? When's the last time you blamed him for something that went wrong in your life? Or here's another way to check this. Psychologists say we hide our deepest hates from us, from ourselves, so we can do our dirty work. Sorry, let me say that again. Psychologists say we hide our deepest hates from ourselves so they can do their dirty work. And as we hide our hatred from God, we do so by creating pictures in our mind of God. A God we can control, a God we can master, a God we can lead off in chains. So we want a God we can control and a God that we are more comfortable with. And here's a direct quote from Tim Keller. The very fact that you have to create a God that you can master shows that you hate a God you can't. Ah, oh, that's not me, Sarah. Okay, here's one more test. Put your hands up if you believe in God. This is not a trick question. Okay. 
Now, who believes, we, we believe that God is unchanging. So now, who believes in the God of the Bible, who when he descends on Mount Sinai, says anyone who touches the mountain will be killed? The God who says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The God who, when he's in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, is so holy that when anyone touches it, they die. Remember the Levite who stumbled and he reached out to steady himself and he died? The God who allows tremendous suffering in the life of Job. And then at the end, he turns up and he says, I'm not even going to tell you why you went through that. You just have to trust me because I'm God and you're not. So who believes in that God? <laughs> it's very uncomfortable, isn't it? I'm uncomfortable. Um, and I don't think there would be anyone here who is not uncomfortable. Because we hate that God. Or we, part of us hates that God or part of God. And therefore we create these different pictures of him. We tell ourselves that God doesn't act that way anymore. Or that, or that he's just about love and grace. Or that as some progressives will say, the Old Testament is just a redundant book. We don't believe in that anymore. We shove the wrath of God along with sin and the fallen human condition under a rug. And we just talk about how God loves everyone and saves everyone. At the end, we will all end up in heaven having one big party. See, we are just like the people in this passage who have come to arrest Jesus. We can't stand the real God. We can't fully understand him and we can't fully control him. We want to lead him away. Lock him up. Dispose of him. We only want the bits of God that fit our neat comfortable little boxes. I can feel the uncomfortableness in the room. <laughs> See, we have, this, we have this wrath against God. Here's the ironic thing. But it is completely unjustified and unwarranted. God, who gives us everything, holds our lives together, gave us his son to pay for our sin. God, who keeps us alive every minute of the day, who loves and desires intimate relationship with us. We rage against him. We might not be aware of it, but we have this wrath and it's completely unjustified and unwarranted. He owes us nothing. As Tim Keller says, we are never going to understand our emotions or our personal history or ourselves until we understand that we are characterised by wrath. And at the cross, in the arrest of Jesus, the wrath of human race rages against God. We are his enemies. We hate him. And we crucified him. See, God asks a very reasonable thing of us. This God who gives us everything, who sustains life, who holds us together, as I said before, rightfully requests that we serve him, enter into relationship with him, and live in loving service to him. It's a totally rightful request. And it's actually the best request. I can think of the name of... Um, many flourishing Christians or many Christians who have a deep faith who have entered into that place of genuine flourishing. You know, their lives um, may not be perfect, they, may, they won't escape trials of this life, but they still have this genuine steadiness of soul. But yet, I can't think of one person who has that same steadiness of soul who does not follow Jesus. They do not serve God or live in that relationship with him. You only have to look at the countless celebrities, the musicians, the wealthy, famous people who appear to have it all but they are so restless in the end, many of them end it for themselves, and it's so tragic. Anyway, that's going out of track. Uh, anyway, God's rightful request is rightful and it's warranted, and it's for our best too. Serve me. Our response? Don't tell me what to do. Just like Joshua. Easier. We give an unrightful response to a very rightful response. God is therefore justly anger, angry at our unjust anger and wrath. 
towards him. God is justified and warranted in his wrath against our unwarranted, unjustified wrath towards him. And if you still don't believe that the human race hates him, the ultimate proof is that when God became vulnerable, we killed him. In our unjustified wrath, we all did. How warranted God's wrath is. Before I move on to the second point, I need to point out that our wrath and anger is human wrath and anger. Human anger is ego. It's expressed um, often emotionally, often in violent ways. It's not control. We, We say we lose control. We hurt others when we say things in anger. We often do more damage with what we do in our anger than the actual thing we're angry about. We have this big element of temper that gets in the way and we lose our temper. God's wrath and anger is never uncontrolled. God is not like us. We assume he is, but in his anger he is not. His wrath is contained, it is controlled, and he never loses his temper, as we humans do. As defined by Tim Keller, God's wrath is a settled opposition to evil and injustice. And we want that in a God, don't we? We want a God who has a settled opposition to evil and injustice. So that's the first point. God's wrath is warranted, justified. The second point is that God's wrath is absorbed. Let's take a look at Jesus' prayer that we heard before. In Matthew's account, uh, in verse 36, we see Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. In Matthew's account, he says, My Father, it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. Just going to do an object lesson here. What is this cup language about? What is it that he's drinking? Well, some ancient context here helps us to understand. Once criminals had been tried and convicted, they were often executed, and the way they were executed was to drink a cup of poison. Anyone who studied philosophy will know about Socrates and having to drink a cup of hemlock. hemlock. Um, And uh, it was not a nice way to go. You would feel your insides burning up and tearing apart, tearing you apart from the inside out, and there would be this awful writhing and agony before you died. And we see other references in Scripture to the way this cup of judgment and punishment was referred to as God's wrath, or God's judgment, sorry. His wrath being this judicial opposition against evil and injustice. And it's depicted in blood-curdling ways in a cup. In Ezekiel, he is pronouncing warranted judgment on Jerusalem after years of religious adultery. You will drink your sister's cup, you will drink it and drain it dry, and you will tear at your breasts, meaning tearing at your flesh because of the pain. In Revelation 14, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. So that's what Jesus is referring to here, a blood-curdling cup of judgment, the wrath of God, deserved to be drunk by us, the recipient, the deserving recipients of God's wrath, not Jesus. But this prayer also has a combination of words that we modern people really struggle to get our heads around being put together but which is key for us to understand the cross. So if you're beginning to nod off, just try and refocus for this bit. Before he prays about the cup, he addresses God as Abba. Abba is not just a child's word, but it's the Aramaic word for father, and it always signifies intimate affection and devotion. How can a loving father have a cup of judgment for the son? 
How can a loving father be with a cup? We struggle to put these two concepts together, let alone appreciate them at the same time in God. Jesus is pointing us here, though, to the fact that these are both aspects of God. God is both a loving and gracious father and a God of judgment. And we really struggle with this, don't we? I don't think I need to illustrate this any further. I'm sure all of us have struggled with this nature of God. Or met people who talk about, how can a loving God be a God of judgment? We just can't get our human minds around that. And I think we struggle partly because of our human understanding, our human incomprehension at the mystery of God, and also the fullness, the, sorry, the fallenness of our human hearts that refuses to accept the true nature of God. But Jesus fully appreciated both aspects, as we can see in this prayer. Why do you think he sweated blood? I don't hear of many death row prisoners who have sweated blood, so anguished about their upcoming death that they display this physical symptom. See, Jesus wasn't anguished at the nails or the thorns or the thought of the crucifixion. He was anguished at drinking the cup of the Father, bearing the full brunt of the wrath of God. It wasn't his physical crucifixion that he was anguished about. He was anguished about bearing the full brunt of the wrath of God. Jesus, the blameless Son of God, drinking the cup of wrath that should have been ours. And here we see Jesus drinking the cup of the Father, absorbing the wrath which is totally warranted to be against us. Alongside the wrath of God with a cup, we see Abba, a loving father who has intimate affection and devotion for his people. And this is why it's such a tremendous display of grace on the cross. Instead of wrath, we get grace. God himself comes to earth incarnate in the person of Jesus and he drinks the cup himself. He gives us a cup of his atoning blood, a cup of grace. And this is what we remind ourselves when we drink the communion cup, as we will do in a minute. God's wrath is absorbed by Jesus. Instead of judgment, we get grace. And think about that as you hold your cup and you think about the cup that Jesus drank for us. In her new song, Communion, Brooke Fraser refers to the communion cup as bittersweet. Bitter because of the punishment that it should be carrying and bitter because of what Jesus drank on our behalf, but sweet because of the grace that we get, we all get to drink instead. So God's wrath is warranted, his grace is absorbed, and thirdly, his wrath is the way we understand grace more fully. This is uh, the third and final point. We can only understand the grace of the Father when we understand the cup of wrath that we should have been given. When we ignore wrath and sin, when we simply talk about the grace and love of God, we actually can't appreciate what God has done for us. When we don't acknowledge the danger we're in, the fallenness of our sinful nature and the deservedness of judgment, our unwarranted wrath against God, we can't see how much we need God's grace. It's like standing at a bonfire with some friends. You're toasting marshmallows, you're having a cup of coffee or whatever, and you're having a fun time. No one's in danger, it's just a really fun evening. Then imagine your friend says, let me show you how much I love you, and he runs into the bonfire and gets burned up. You wouldn't say, wow, how he loved us. You'd say, what was he on? Contrast that to you standing next to your friends and your house is on fire. Your family is inside and about to die. 
Your friend runs into the fire, saves your family, but then dies from the effort. Then you would say, wow, how he loved us. See, it's not until we appreciate the danger that we're in, the deservedness of the wrath of God to us, the sinful nature of our hearts, and our own unjustified wrath towards God, that we can appreciate the nature of God's grace and understand how it is a demonstration of his profound love for us. And as Paul says in Romans 5, he did it while we were still his enemies. I'm going to close with this picture that speaks to me of this beautiful nature of God. His wrath towards sin and injustice, his warranted wrath towards our unwarranted wrath, and yet the grace that is offered to us instead in the picture of Jesus. Jesus' lifeless body taken down off the cross so that we can have life. Jesus, God himself, has drunk the cup of judgment so that we can drink the cup of grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tremendous display of grace that you show us through what happened on the cross. Thank you that you yourself absorbed the wrath and judgment that was fully deserved by us. Thank you that we get to drink the cup of grace and live. Help us to understand this truth more fully in the days ahead as we approach Easter. Help us to appreciate our desperate need of you. Help us to see how broken we are and how much we need and have been saved by your grace. Help us to live our lives in response to your rightful request in relationship with you giving you the throne of our lives and making you our Lord and our Master. We are terrible masters of our own lives. Only having you as Master will truly lead to a life of deep peace and a settled spirit. In your name. Amen.